Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. We'll be reading from James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is not this that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do, do you not know that friendship with the world is, a, is amenity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the, word, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, not, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I'm going to invite uh, Billy Glossin up to pray for our sermon. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this community, for this church, and for the ability and freedom for us to be able to gather here this Sunday morning together to listen to your word. Dear Lord, as always, calm our hearts, slow down our minds, allow us to put down our grocery lists so that we can hear everything that you have for us. Penetrate our hearts and allow us to know what you're speaking to us. Speak through Billy, give him the words and the wisdom to call us out on what we need to know and hear and change. In your name I pray, amen. So it's been six weeks since you guys last heard me, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I and, and our son took the month of June off and did some traveling, and it was wonderful and, re- and restful, and so it is really good to be back with you. Well, I had a friend who always avoided going to the doctor. You ever had anyone like that? Someone you know who it's like clearly like they cough and you're like, that's not normal, right? That kind of situation. So this person always seemed to avoid it. You know, be like, I just really, really struggling to breathe. It's like, that's, yeah, that's not good, right? That's not like a way that you want to live. They would avoid it. They would avoid it. They would avoid it. Yeah, you know, I'm fine. It's probably just this. I just need some ibuprofen. I'm like, I don't think that that's how that works, but okay. And eventually, they finally caved, and they went, and as they began to talk to their physician, they realized, hey, there might be something more going on here. And so they scheduled an exploratory surgery. That exploratory surgery found that there were some pretty serious issues, and in fact, a quadruple bypass was ordered. Now, that's a big deal. That's, uh, that's you know, four veins that aren't working there. That's not good, or four arteries, and, and it's this kind of freaky moment where they realized, man, I should have gone sooner. Sometimes that's how you and me, we can be when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to diagnosing how we're doing with the Lord. We ignore the problem 
until it's finally revealed that we need major course correction. We're continuing on in the book of James, and today we're going to be taking a hard look at what is the state of our spiritual lives. My friend who had that surgery is doing great now. The surgery was successful. And talking to them recently, they shared, man, I just feel so much better. I have so much more energy than I used to have. Now, it can be challenging to be exposed by the word, right? We tend to have this moment where someone will say something to us that we know is true. Hey, man, I haven't seen you on a Sunday in a while. I know that you got a lot going on. I know life's been busy. Hey, have you been in the word at all? Like, are you reading God's word regularly? You know, you talk a lot about this person. Have you prayed for them? You love that one, right? It's like, no, I haven't, but thank you for making me feel terrible. It can be a challenging thing when we're exposed by the word of God, but friends, it is healing. It is. And today, as we look at our passage, we're going to see that James gets to the core of why we have so much conflict in our lives. You feel like you're fighting with people all the time. Like your kids just won't listen. Your spouse drives you nuts. Your coworkers are all insane, right? You get this moment where you feel like there's so much tension. There's so much animosity in your life. Well, James today is going to call us back to gospel hope. And here's our big idea this morning. Simply this. The steadfast life embraces the transformative power of grace. Steadfast life embraces the transformative power of grace. So we're going to walk through this passage. And really, here is one thing about James. James is like every week, it's like getting hit with a crowbar, but it's also extremely practical, right? We, we, we get really helpful guidelines on what it looks like to walk in obedience and faith. And so this week, let's jump into verse one and let's see first our struggle, our struggle. James is going to begin his diagnosis, his examination, and we're going to explore in us this tendency that we all have to drift. And really, this is almost a list of symptoms, as it were, as to drifting in our spiritual lives. And the first thing that James points us to see is that we, are, we can kind of know that there's an indicator that we're moving away, that we're drifting away in our spiritual life, is this, we have strife in our relationships. Strife in our relationships, right? Again, verse one says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you, right? Do you have frequent arguments? Do you? Do you consider yourself a quarrelsome person? Maybe that word feels weird to you. Do you argue a lot, right? Do you get in fights a lot? Now, my family knows something about me that's admittedly embarrassing. And it's that I get a little hangry, you know? Uh, if you know what that means, that's hungry, angry, right? I get a little hangry, and uh, I remember coming home, and, and my wife is like, why are you in such a bad mood? And then it clicked, and she just said, she gave Sam a snack to give me, and my little two-year-old comes up to me and goes, eat a snack! And that's when I realized there's a problem here, right? Now, that's funny, but it's also kind of silly, right? That we would often dismiss and say, well, like, yeah, there's something else. I'm just mad. It's this reason. It's that reason. And we're ignoring the real problem. You see, many of us, we don't have perspective to see when we're in the midst of an argument. And I think all of us would admit that, right? We're not seeing clearly when we're in the middle of a heated debate with someone. And when we think about those moments when things have heated up, right, where, where we're kind of at odds with someone else, your first instinct is often to say what? It's not my fault. It's all their fault, right? If only they weren't so unreasonable, right? If only they weren't so demanding, or if they would just show a little bit more thoughtfulness and compassion, everything would be fine. It's not me. Now, it seems pretty obvious, 
We often would say that other people are to blame for our conflicts, but here's the real issue. James isn't gonna let us off the hook that easily because James tells us there's a different perspective and it's this, that the problem isn't really with everyone else, it's with us. The real issue, friends, isn't out there, it's in here. It's in our own hearts and our own attitudes, right? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Conflict comes about because our own selfish desires are not being met. Now, those desires might be right. Those desires might be good. But the reality is conflict comes about because of our own selfish desires. And this, friends, is a very revealing truth. If we're to look back on our conflict, if we could just soberly assess, I mean, if we could just get like a a highlight reel of our arguments, I don't want to see that. But if it exists, we would see how many times we've bullied, how many times we've kind of twisted our words or twisted the words that were spoken to us to get our way. Because we are fueled by selfishness. So the first thing we see again, the first kind of, diagnosis here is, is there strife in your relationships? The second thing is disordered desires. Disordered desires. Look at verse two. You desire and do not have, so what do you do? You wait, save up, prime days almost here, right? Is that what you're doing? Or no, it says, so you murder, right? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Our desires are often disordered. The last part of verse two says you do not have, right? Or you have not. How many of us feel like there's something wrong in our lives? Like something's just missing. I mean, I talk to people, meet with them all the time, and it's kind of the same thing over and over again. Man, I just don't have any peace. I have no joy. I don't have it. Now listen, those desires are actually right. Or would any of us say that you shouldn't have any peace and joy, man? You should just be miserable, right? Baptized in lemon juice. That's the Christian way. Like, no, right? None of us would think that, right? We, we know that that's not the way to be, that those desires are actually good. Where the disorder comes is when we look to things outside of the Lord to fulfill those desires. Remember, Coram Deo, we are called to abundant life. Right? So let me ask this question of you. Are the fruits of the Spirit evident in your life? Galatians 5, right? Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do these fruits, friends, mark your life? Are you experiencing them? Do you desire them? If you find yourself longing for abundant life and wondering why you don't have it, well, James is really happy to tell us by pointing us to the next reality. And here's the next thing we see. It's this. We don't ask. We don't ask. So we have strife in our relationship. We have disordered desires and we don't ask. Again, look at verse two. You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then this part, you do not have because you do not ask. Friend, do you pray? Do you pray? Are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking him? 
Last year, we had an issue with our Jeep. Um, I was driving back from uh, this building, like right after we came and checked it out to see if this would be a space that we could gather. And uh, remember going downhill, pressing my brakes, and they just kept pressing, right? And that's like, that's, that's not what you want. It's not how brakes should work. So freaked me out, took my Jeep in, and got it fixed. And sure enough, a couple Sundays later, mentioned that, and here comes Justin Seidel, like beelining for me. Because Justin knows Jeeps. I mean, it's, he's got a whole thing, Justin Jeep. I mean, it's a whole thing, right? He, he's always wearing a Jeep shirt, talks about Jeeps, knows Jeeps. And that's because he repairs them for a living. So very lovingly, he said, hey, man, next time you got an issue with your Jeep, just hit me up and I'll be happy to help you. And so sure enough, a couple months later, because I'm driving an older Jeep, I see the uh, oil pressure gauge doing this. That's not good, by the way, right? I don't know if you know much about cars. I don't. So I was looking at that going, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's right. I'm not sure. And so I, I remember talking to uh, Hannah and being like, hey, you know, I, f- I feel like something's going on. I really don't want to bother Justin, but what do you think? And she said, well, <laughs> I think you should. I mean, after all, we'd be a fool not to get his advice to seek his wisdom and his help. I mean, it's what he does. He knows and understands Jeeps. Why would you not ask the Jeep guy about your Jeep? So think about this, friends. The creator God has given us open access to him. We can talk to him anytime about anything and enjoy his perfect wisdom. We can receive his help, yet how often do we fail to pray? How often is it the last thing we think of doing? Only when we're desperate. Only when we are in moments of guilt or need. Many of our lives are tragically marked by prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is a sign that someone is trying to run things in their own strength, for their own sake, and under their own authority. Prayerlessness arises from this sense of independence from God, so that instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. Rather than trusting in the Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children, we ourselves decide what's good, and we seek to gain it through our own efforts. Friend, let me encourage you. The Lord wants to hear from you. How do I know that? Because the invitation is all over scripture to come to him. If you examine your life and you see that you're not praying, would this be a wake-up call for you? To see that you are drifting. Maybe you would say, Billy, I do pray. I pray all the time. I ask God for all kinds of things. Maybe you are praying but you feel like God's not answering the way that you'd like. And that's where we see next, we don't receive. So we ask not, next we don't receive. Verse three, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, scripture gives us a lot of examples, friends, of things that hinder our prayers. We, we can often feel like, man, I'm praying, what's going on? Well, let's just kind of look through. I've got a list for us here. We'll go through these quickly. Um, so a couple different things. The first one is sin. Is there unrepentant sin in your life? Next, unforgiveness. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Third, the lack of faith. James talked about this earlier. This is that kind of double-minded it. Double-mindedness, Mr. Looking Both Ways. God, will you give me this? I'm just going to go take care of it myself. Lack of faith. Third, or fourth, giving up. Luke 11 is the parable of the persistent widow. I love that. Jesus tells us to pray and not lose heart. 
So that thing that you've been praying about, that family member that you love and you wish would just respond to the gospel, have you lost heart? Jesus tells us not to lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give up. Wrong motives. That's what James is talking about right here. (laughs) Asking God with wrong motives. We'll, We'll dive into that in just a moment. And then finally, marital strife. Men, this is for us. Peter tells us that if we are unkind, if we are harsh with our wives, that God doesn't listen to our prayers. Some of us need to take a long look in the mirror and repent and be kind to our wives. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, this is what he pointed them to do. He, pray, he taught them to pray for God's concerns, right? We pray for his name, his kingdom, his will before what? Before our own before our own provision, our own pardon, our own protection. The purpose of prayer is not to try to get God to do what we want. It's actually a means by which we align ourselves to his priorities. Part of the point of prayer is to remind ourselves of what it is that God wants. But for many of James's readers, right, for many of us, prayer seems to be this means of coaxing God into our plans of using him to further our own purposes. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard of this is that we treat God like the great big pinata in the sky and prayer is a stick. And we just need to get the good stuff from the Lord. Now James, after showing us, man, we've got a lot going on within us that causes us to drift away. He shows us our selfish, disordered desires, our, our prayerlessness and our hindered prayers. He brings us to the final troubling symptom of a drifting heart. It's this, worldliness, worldliness. I know I sound like an old school preacher right now. We're just going through the Bible. Verse four, get ready for this one. You adulterous people, love that, right? I was reading this this week. I'm like, man, welcome back, Billy. Okay, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, hostility, opposition with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, this is some pretty strong language, right? James reminds us that we are the bride of Christ, but that we run after other lovers. And this ought not be. But he goes a f- step further by saying, hey, you can't be friends with the world. Now this makes sense, right? Like if you found out your spouse was cheating and then you had this massive reconciliation moment where they repented and you worked, you went through counseling, you had friends get involved and your relationship was restored. They had made amends and and you're moving forward. And then lo and behold, it's game night and they invite the person that they cheated on you with. And they're like, hey, we're just friends. They're just coming over game nights. No big deal, right? How many of us would be like, you're right, sweetie. Just let them come on in. No, you'd be like, no, heck no. No way, no how, no chance. You can't be friends with them. Are you insane? When we talk about being friends nowadays, what we often think of is more casual acquaintance, right? I could, I could preach a separate sermon. Let me just say this. If you don't have any friends, we need to be in gospel community. That's a separate sermon, but you need friends, brother and sister. You do. All right, back into the sermon. Okay, When we talk about friends, we often mean it as a more casual acquaintance, right? But back in James's day in antiquity and even today, true friends were something else. 
They shared the same mindset, the same outlook in life. They had the same common interests, the same values, the same goals. They saw life from a similar perspective. They even shared their stuff when it was needed. They genuinely cared for each other and worked together easily because they agreed on how things should be done. Now as Christians, we are friends with God in this unique and exclusive way. James said earlier that we are unstained by the world. And what this means is we can and should be friendly to anyone, right? This is not a verse saying go around and like don't be, the, be the Amish, right? Don't look at anybody, don't ridicule, don't, don't ever talk to anyone again. That's not what this verse is saying. We can be friendly to others. We can show kindness and concern. We should be good neighbors. We should be good coworkers, no doubt about it. But when it comes to the deepest meaning of friendship, we can't be friends with the world because we reject its values. I mean, we feel that, right? Like we feel that the world is broken. And it's like, you, you, you kind of get on social media or in the news and you're like, That's not, this ain't it. James gives us a very simple equation. Friendship with the world equals enmity with God. That means opposition with God. It's as simple as that. If we want to know where we stand with God, we just need to take a look at our heart's desires. Am I craving worldly things or godly things? Am I chasing after the same stuff that the world is chasing after? Or do I have a deep longing for the things that honor God? Do I care about the Lord's reputation? Do I care about the well-being of his people? Do I care about serving others and telling others about the good news of Jesus? What dominates your minds, your concerns? What is it, friends? Right, if we were to just evaluate our week, is there anything in you that looks different than your friend that wants nothing to do with Jesus? And if there's not, then we need to ask the hard question of how far have I strayed? I so appreciate the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this section because it gives it so much clarity. And I just want to read it to you. This is what he says. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and enemies of his way. All of this leads us to see that we are prone to drift, that we have hearts that are prone to wonder. We sing it often, don't we? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Where do we turn in moments like this? What do we do when we're desperate? Just the other day, I was reading scripture and I was stirred because I saw someone who was in a desperate situation and realized how broken they were. There's a woman who had been bleeding for years. What does she do? She runs after Jesus and clings to his garment. That's what we do, friends. We look to Jesus and we see second, God's grace, God's grace. Verse six, but he gives more grace. But he gives more 
grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, James has made it crystal clear. Our sin carries weight, and it has struck at the core of our hearts, leaving us convicted and aware of this. We are weak. But here's the beautiful part. James doesn't just leave us stranded in that state of despair. No, he lifts our eyes to the solution that shatters our weakness. And it's this, the boundless, overwhelming grace of our God. Our sin may be great, but let me tell you, his grace is infinitely greater. I mean, we just sang this. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. The scriptures not only show us how we should live, but they also reveal the empowering truth of how we can actually do it. On our own, friends, we are utterly powerless to reach that standard of God's holiness. None none of us can. I mean, pick the best kid you can think of, and they're going to fall and stumble and sin. But here's the game changer. Through the power of God's word, the indwelling of his spirit, we undergo this radical transformation into the very image of Christ. This is a vital lesson. It's simple. God opposes the proud, but he lavishes grace upon the humble. The difference is when we're exposed When our sin is revealed, what is the state of your heart? Are you defensive or are you humble? Yeah, but you don't understand. You see, you're not quite getting it. Yeah, but you or you're right. I am that way. Friends, as we fix our gaze upon Jesus We are gradually molded into his perfect example as we grasp the profound message of the gospel, this undeserved grace. Humility takes root in our hearts. God's grace pours abundantly into the heart that recognizes their desperate need for mercy. Now we may know deep down that salvation isn't earned, but our natural inclination is to keep striving, to keep attempting to win God's favor through our own efforts. If I just do enough, if I just get back on my reading plan, if I, if I just keep showing up, and then God will be happy with me. Listen closely. Grace cannot be earned. It defies the concept of merit. Grace, by its very nature, is undeserved favor. It's a gift bestowed solely out of the sheer love of God. Let this truth sink in. God's grace is not something we can achieve through our own strength. God's grace is not something I can achieve through my own strength. Sliding it up here. There were two dogs, a German shepherd and a poodle, okay? And they were arguing about who was the greatest. These are talking dogs. Bear with me. The German shepherd argued that he was bigger and stronger, and the poodle argued that he was cuter. The German shepherd was game for a contest and asked the poodle if he wanted to test his greatness by seeing which dog could get inside the house of the owner first. And poodle agreed to the challenge. The German shepherd went first with its strength. It went up on its hind leg, opened its mouth, and started trying to twist the doorknob. Couldn't turn the doorknob with his mouth, so it took its paws and began twisting and tweaking without opposable thumbs. It was hilarious. After about three minutes, he had twisted and turned and tweaked, and he had got the door open. He was so worn out from his efforts to get inside. 
And now it was the poodle's turn. He went over to the door, sat down, and barked. And the owner came and opened the door. Religion requires hard work and lots of effort. Relationship requires a lot less because the poodle knew how to get the attention of the master. Grace, friends, is not something that we can obtain or merit. It's a gift. It's precious. It's this unearned gift that God lavishes upon us because of his boundless love. And when people see their sin, right, when we see our inability to reform ourselves, our brokenness, when we stand before a holy God, we, we, we feel the guilt, man, the hopelessness, the shame. Our sin, it humbles us and we plead to God for mercy. And here's the thing, God grants that mercy. He gives the grace of forgiveness first and then restoration. And this is redemption, friends, that Jesus pays the price for our sin. When we see just how far we are from a holy God, we know that Christ stretched out his hands on Calvary, bleeding and dying for our place and our brokenness, grace upon grace. And James doesn't hold back because he saw what his brother did to accomplish grace. In nearly every paragraph of James, he reminds us of our constant failure to follow God's word and to pass the tests of true faith. Yet, despite our shortcomings, we somehow get this kind of broken mentality that we can earn God's love by doing enough or doing something special. Like pastors fall into this all the time, right? I talk to other friends and myself, we know better than this, but we can fall into the trap of believing that our hard work in ministry will somehow earn us extra love points from God. But guess what? God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't favor pastors over salesmen or farmers or engineers. It happens to any of us who pour our hearts out and our souls out into a worthy cause. We start thinking that God owes us. But here's the thing. God's grace is for the humble, not the self-assured. The call, friends, is to repent and to seek God's grace. And here's the amazing part. If we humble ourselves in genuine repentance, God promises to forgive us and exalt us with Christ. A quote, and then we'll move on, from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. All of this, friends, is what makes, I, I have to hit this hard because we're gonna land the plane here and we're gonna talk about what we do. And if we don't hear this correctly, we'll twist it to think, now I just gotta go follow the checklist and I'm good. No, friends, it starts and it ends with grace. All of this, it leads us to see how grace transforms us and leads us to the path of steadfastness. Third, the path of steadfastness. This is where James gets very practical and what it looks like to experience the transformative power of grace as you follow along this path of steadfastness. Look at verse 7. We'll just look at the beginning here. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So the first thing that we need to do is submit ourselves to God. Submit yourself to God. And when we hear that word submit in Scripture, it's not just 
sitting around and, and waiting for God to boss us around, right? No, I mean, sub- submission absolutely involves obeying God's command, but it's more than that. It's about aligning our lives with God's overall direction. It's putting our lives in order under his guidance and leadership. Submitting to God is yielding to him, recognizing his just and rightful rule over our lives. And submission, it's not an optional extra for the Christian life. As though the main business of being in relation with, relationship with God is somehow unrelated to submission, or as though submission only occasionally plays a part in our lives. No, rather, submitting to God, friends, is a part of what it means to rightly relate to him. When Jesus addressed those who wanted to be his disciples, this is what he tells them. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. When James calls us to examine our life, it starts with, is the whole of my life, everything I'm doing, submitted to God? Because if it's not, friends, we need to assess where it is we're holding on to something. He's calling us back to what the Christian life should always be marked by, that we start with a submission to God. The second thing, resist the devil. Second part of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Fight sin. We can't be passive in this. Fight sin. James links submission to God with resistance of the devil. To submit to God's authority is to resist the devil's authority. To submit to God is to order our lives under his authority. To resist the devil means this. It means we do something. We oppose. We we fight back. We take a stand against the devil's authority. To oppose Satan means to resist temptations, especially this, to fight now, I'm grateful that my phone, when I get a call that's a scam, says scam likely now. Because Chaboy Bill just, you know, I, I would get calls, and I'm like a pastor, so I feel this obligation of like, I got to answer it, you know. This could be someone who needs something. No, they just want to scam me, right? And I'll get on a call, and you know, I have this, did you ever, have you ever worked a job that was pretty rough? You know, maybe it was like people were just really rude to you. So if you work with people, that includes you, right? People just are not great. And so I'm thinking to myself when I'm on the phone, it's a telemarketer, like they have this, I've worked beside a telemarketing firm and talked to those guys, and every day they just looked like they didn't want to breathe anymore. And, and I was like, I've got to be nice to these people when I, when I answer the phone. Here's the problem with that. When you don't give them a firm no, guess what it's really hard to do? Get off of the phone. You don't want to be a jerk. I mean, they're just doing their job. It's, it's often the way it is, though, right? In temptation, we do the same thing. We say we're not interested in buying what Satan's selling, but we stay on the phone, and we continue to discuss all the tempting offers, and we leave open the possibility for the devil to make a sale. To resist temptation, we must say a firm no, and hang up the phone. How many of us keep the door open? Listen, I know Jesus said to gouge out my eye and cut off my hand, but I really don't want to delete Instagram. Just like it. I know my screen time says it's been eight hours today. Listen, it's okay. I'm being extreme, but also I'm not. I mean, how many of us, we leave things that are not necessarily sin open, but we know those things that we leave open often lead us to the path of sin? So let me ask this question. How are you fighting sin? How are you fighting sin? Honestly, are you making war against the things that would pull you away from Christ's lordship or are you given to cold indifference? 
To resist the devil is to turn towards God. And James could give us no greater encouragement to do this when he says that we draw near to him and he draws near to us. Next thing we see, draw near to the Lord. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Friends, write that down. That is a promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When we approach God, it is not a one-way street. We come near to him for worship, for service, to encounter him, to seek his help, to find reassurance. But here's the remarkable part. James gives us this promise that sets God apart from all other gods. When we draw near to God, you know what happens? He draws near to us. It's this divine dance of closeness and connection. I mean, think about this. Moses himself posed this question in Deuteronomy 4.7. He said, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Corndale, let this truth sink deep into your soul. When we take a step towards God, when we open our hearts to him in worship, when we serve him, when we seek after him, when we repent, when we draw near, he reciprocates, he leans in, he embraces us with his presence. We have the clearest picture of this in the Gospels. We see God embodied in Christ. And Christ tells us a story. Hey, do you want to know what the father's like? He has a rebellious, horrible son who squanders everything. And when he comes home, guess what he does? Does he point at him and say, you're the worst, you're a failure? No, he hikes up his loins and he runs to him. Man, my wife re-illustrates this to me over and over because she taught our son this and randomly he'll just throw his arms open and say, my son, and run to us. Our God is a God who desires closeness. He has not left you, friend. He has not left you. If you were to be honest and soberly assess your life, you're the one who's not picking up. He longs to be near his people. So let us boldly approach him, knowing that as we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And as we draw near, here's what we see. Often we see the ways, just like the prodigal son, that we need to come to the father and say, I've sinned against you in heaven. Look at verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The longing for a pure heart naturally stirs within us a deep sorrow for our sins. When our wrongdoing becomes evident, the righteous cannot help but grieve. We can't help but grieve when we see the ways that we've broken the heart of God. And James gives us a choice. We can choose to laugh now, finding amusement in sin, and mourn later when the weight of judgment falls upon us. Or we could choose to mourn now, deeply grieving over our sins, and laugh later, rejoicing in the abundant grace of God. Sadly, the world often finds joy in all the wrong things. They chase after fleeting happiness through indulgence and sin, experiencing just whatever temporary satisfaction we can get our hands on. But on the other hand, those who break away from sin, we may face temporary sorrow, yes, 
But let me tell you, it is far better to mourn for a season now and experience everlasting joy in the future. Paul understood this dynamic well when he says this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So let's not mistake delayed remorse for genuine contrition. The truly repentant man, the truly repentant woman, grieves and mourns their sins, whether they are caught or not. That is the sorrow that paves the way to healing. That is the mourning which Jesus himself pronounced blessed when he said, blessed are those who mourn. And the final charge, last thing that James gives us as we walk in steadfastness is this, walk in humility. Walk in humility. When we keep in mind that everything we do is in the presence of the Lord, right? Coram Deo and that his holiness sets the standard, it becomes a lot easier for us to humble ourselves. But here's the thing. When we start comparing ourselves to others, humility often takes a back seat. Well, we've all seen that happen before, right? A parent scolds a child for a messy room, and the child quickly deflects, saying, you think my room is bad, you should see. They proceed to name the messiest kid they can think of. Adults do the same things when we're, we're exposed, when our flaws are made known. Sure, I have a problem, but I'm not nearly as bad as so-and-so. Whenever we compare ourselves to others, there's always someone worse off, making it easier to avoid true humility. However, if we shift our focus and we compare ourselves to the Lord, to the God who's the absolute standard of holiness, those excuses vanish and we become way more inclined to humble ourselves. I mean, this is what happens to the prophet Isaiah, a righteous man who served as God's very mouthpiece. When he stood before a holy God, he said, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. In a way, he was comparing himself, yes, to his fellow countrymen, but not in the manner that excused his own sin, but revealed just how broken and in need of grace he was. Friends, when God is our benchmark, humility comes naturally. When we grieve over our sins and turn to him in faith, he extends his redeeming grace. When we come to God in repentance and humility, he will forgive us and lift us up. When weightlifters want to strengthen their legs, there's no exercise that competes with the squat. I've tried them. I'm bad at them. I just hurt myself, right? You put the weights on your shoulders You go down, up, and down, up, and down in order to build strength in your legs, in order to build your hamstrings, in order to build your legs, you've got to squat. Most of us don't get low enough. We're not growing stronger because we're not willing to bend. Coram Deo, assess your life. Are you submitting yourselves to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to the Lord in repentance and humility? Would we be a people who embrace the transformative power of grace? Some questions for us as we close this morning. First, if I were to assess myself, where am I struggling? Strife in relationships, disordered desires, prayerlessness or hindered prayers or worldliness. Second, how does understanding God's grace impact the way I approach humility and my relationship with others? 
Third, how can I fight sin and cultivate a deeper intimacy with God in my daily life? And then finally, fourth, what are some practical ways I can demonstrate humility in my interactions with others and in my relationship with God? And then all four are going to be on the screen if you want to snag a picture. Let's pray together. Holy God, we need your grace. We need your grace, God. We are those who are prone to wonder, prone to sin. God, would you, would you call us to see the heart of Christ? Would we mourn our sin but know that there is welcome? That you chase after us as we run towards you. Would we draw near? I pray for those, Lord, this morning who are assessing their lives and honestly, Lord, see ways in which they have really drifted. Would this be a moment, Lord, where they see that you are lovingly calling them back to life in you? God, would we repent of sin and would we mourn it so that we may rejoice in saying of your great grace. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.